This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, dailygiving.org. I've been telling you about it now for months. They have crossed the 8,100 member or subscriber list. That means every single day, well over $8,100 goes to an incredible organization handpicked by the dedicated team with rabbinic oversight, with incredible integrity at Daily Giving. Please go there and add your name to that register today, dailygiving.org. Our guest today, Rivka Ravitz, this past summer went, I would say, viral when a picture emerged of President Joe Biden kneeling down to her in the White House, an incredible inversion of what we might imagine. And you'll hear the story about what precipitated that today. She's an amazing woman, mother of 12 children, who has operated for decades since she was a very young woman at the highest echelons of Israeli politics. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any podcast app. Comments or questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with longtime chief of staff to Israeli President Ruby Rivlin. Rivka Ravitz. We are here with Rivka Ravitz, the longtime chief of staff to longtime Israeli president Reuven Rivlin, and a powerhouse of activity and political connectivity within the Israeli scene, the Jewish world, and in particular, what's known as the Haredi sector, the ultra Orthodox sector, all of which we're going to get to. But first of all, how are you, Rivka? Thanks. Hi, shalom to everyone. I'm fine, Baruch Hashem. How are you? Amazing, amazing. I'm doing great. And before we even get too far in, I promised my daughter, who is 17, that I will give her a shout out on the podcast. In fact, right before we started recording, she was on her way out the door to school. And she said, don't forget to give me a massive shout out. So Rina, thank you, a shout out. And the reason I'm giving her a shout out is because my daughter heard Rivka in her school as a speaker and came home and said, Abba, you must interview this person. And the truth is I had actually heard of you, Rivka, and read about you many times over the years and it was on my list. But once my daughter came and said it, you know, you have to, I had to do it. I had to comply. So Rina, thank you. (laughs) I I also will say hooray, Rina. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. amazing. So Rivka, why don't we, uh, as we always do, take it from the top and tell us where you're from. I know, you grew up in Israel, I believe, but tell us a little bit about where and, and what that upbringing was like. So I, I grew up in, a, in, in Jerusalem, in Israel. I was the second out of 10, six sisters and brothers. I grew up in a very uh, Haredi neighborhood in Jerusalem. Haredi means uh, ultra, ultra-Orthodox neighborhood. Only ultra-Orthodox families uh, were living there. Uh, yeshivas, Rabbanim, and um, it's called Marisdorf. I don't know if you are familiar with the name of the neighborhood, but it's a very from uh, neighborhood. My son is currently in a yeshiva uh, in Romema, which is right basically at the top okay. of, uh, of Marisdorf. So, uh, exactly. Yeah. 
so you know. Hey, you were um, on Sorotskin so, Street or where? what street did you live on? Sorotskin, yeah, 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 Sorotskin Street. Exactly. Amazing. Amazing. So I grew up there. Um, as I said, I was one of 10. When I was a child, I had a very happy childhood. Afterwards, when I grew up, I understood that there was not so much money at home. Um, but as a child, I didn't feel it. There was a really a happy uh, environment at home and we had everything. Uh, my mother used to sew our clothing by herself and we were used to get big bags of clothing from our aunts and uh, family in the States. And I didn't, I didn't know it's, <laughs> it's a shame. We, we were very happy at those uh, very days, uh, opening those big bags on our old sofa and uh, living room and uh, choosing our clothing. And even those clothing that were not uh, proper to uh, wear anymore. So my mother didn't throw them out. She would cut the buttons out of it. Maybe she would need the button for something and then throw out the clothing, the second hand. Incredible. What was the, uh, were your family, had they been in Israel for a long time or what was like the, the origins of the family itself? My parents, the two of them, they uh, were Alim Chadashim. Before I was born, they came, uh, the two of them, from the States. Uh, my mother was born up in Flatbush, and my father in Manhattan, and then Mansi. And as they were uh, big children, even big boy, uh, like teenagers, they came to Israel. So they came with their families? Yeah, with their parents. Fantastic. And what did your parents do when, as you were growing up? Was your father studying in yeshiva full-time or what was their occupation? Yeah, well, my father was a full-time yeshiva student until today when he's uh, 70 years old. He's still 20, I won't say 20, but maybe 18 hours a day he sits in, uh, in, in studies. Uh, Gemara, Chumash, everything. And my mother was a uh, wise house. She was at the house at home the whole day long. Incredible. It's, it's amazing to think about how people could make ends meet in such an environment, but it sounds like they, <laughs> they did whatever they had to, to survive. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. So you had, I guess, a, a pretty conventional sort of uh, ultra-Orthodox, as you mentioned, upbringing. I assume you went to the Beis Yaakov's there and, and everything like that. Which high school did you go to? I went to Beis Yaakov in Matrasdorf and Sorotskin uh, those days. And then as I got... 14, I went to seminary in Geula, in Malchisra. So that's also the center of, uh, of Jerusalem. Very ultra-Orthodox seminary, Beis Yaakov Seminary. Is that Hadash or Yashan? Hadash. Hadash. So my, my family, <laughs> my wife became very close to a family, Kivalevich, there. Ah, she's a, an, uh, an amazing teacher, Muslim uh, teacher. So it's funny, my, my, wife's, my wife's maiden name is Kivalevich. And so when she, my wife, years ago already now, went to seminary, so one of her counselors said to her, oh, you should go meet this family. Maybe you're related. So she <laughs> went to them, and it uh, turns out they're not related because they are a family of, of Levium, of Levites, and my wife's family is not. Um, but Interesting. they became close, and we stayed close ever since. Um, and we, whenever we go to Israel, we visit them, and we go for you know, Shabbos meals. I think and, they live in Givat Shaul, right? They live in Givat Shaul, exactly right. And, uh, <laughs> and now their children, of course, are all over the country, and you know, it's been beautiful. We've gone to their children, and Send my, you know, send my son to their children, and he's studying <laughs> Israel. So became like he's family. a very, very known uh, teacher, the high uh, level uh, grades. She speaks about a lot about Baichel Torah. We say in Hebrew, like uh, house of Torah. The husband shall sit sh should sit and learn, and right. uh, 
should uh, should uh, work um, and earn. So yeah, she's a very interesting lady. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I think when you said that's that's the only reason I asked which base Yaakov High School was <laughs> because otherwise uh, I don't really know any differences between them. But um, <laughs> yeah, I no figured. differences. <laughs> As I uh, got to the age of eighteen, still learning, still a student in seminary, uh, learning um, at the seminary to be a teacher, an English teacher. So I met my husband and I got married very uh, early at the age of 18 and a half. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Was that common in your circle of friends? Um, so it was common to get uh, married early, but not so early. Let's say 19, maybe 20. 18 was a bit. Um, so what weird. happened? Uh, how, how come you got lucky in that way? That was funny. My parents. Um, at at, at uh, the age of uh, 17, they met one each other and they went out almost for two years. So my father told me, you know, go <laughs> see the boy. And it, and I said, I, I don't have time now. I'm learning and I want to finish my degree and be a teacher. So he said, you know, it could you could take your time. But in our community, it was uh, not working like that. You can't take your time if you uh, want to know a boy. So you <laughs> have to marry him. <laughs> and that's what happened. It took three months. Wow. They said your parents dated for two years? Yeah, because when they lived in the States, I think they were a bit Neakiva type. Like when they came to Israel, they became more Haredi. Wow. That's fascinating. So they, they grew up in a more of a modern Orthodox or... Uh, I think, yeah. I, I'm not sure, uh, but I think uh, like that's what uh, I heard. Incredible. So you got married very, very young. and Very young. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the family, because I know you married into a family that also is fairly prominent and fairly active in, you know, the Israeli yeah. political scene and, and so forth. And I don't know if they were back then also, but yeah, tell yeah. us a little bit about the family that you that you married into. Uh, a year after we got married, there was uh, elections in Israel. And my father-in-law, my husband's father, uh, he was elected to be a member of Knesset at the same time as Benjamin Netanyahu being elected for the first time to being a prime minister of Israel. It was his first time. So this is 96, maybe? 96, uh, uh, yeah, towards 97, yeah, the summer. And he appointed my father-in-law to be the head of the finance uh, committee in the Knesset. That's a very um, a nice job in the Knesset. And my father-in-law said, uh, I was already uh, pregnant. Uh, the funny thing is that I was pregnant with my first daughter and my mother was pregnant with her 10th daughter. We were pregnant together. We had the same due date. And um, he said, Rivka, would you like to come and be my um, parliamentarian assistant and my advisor uh, for the finance committee? And I said, no, I won't because I'm a teacher. And then he showed me that the salary in the Knesset is a bit better. So I <laughs> left teaching and I came um, with him to the Knesset. And that that was the first time I came into the that building as a girl and a teenager. I never went into the Knesset. I had friends that did go to visit the Knesset, went to listen to uh, some speeches in the Knesset. And they were coming back to, to school very excited. They heard... Uh, Shamir, they heard uh, Sharon, but I never did. Uh, so that was my first time in that uh, tremendous building. And I remember myself at the age of maybe, I, I think I was not 19 yet, telling to myself that I never will know 
the way from the room to the car or it was it seemed so tremendous and so uh, huge for me and so uh even frightening did you have any interest in in politics at all growing up like was it something that you thought about or talked about or discussed the truth is no and even in my family we never conversations about politics no <laughs> I know it, it sounds very uh, real but it was not it was not my dream it was not my um path I didn't I didn't think I, I would do that wow and your father-in-law what qualified him to be um at, at this high position was he was he someone who worked in banking or in economics like what was his because I imagine he was also from the you know, more ultra-Orthodox sector. So what yeah. What qualified him to assume this very prestigious and important role in government affairs? So first of all, he was um, very uh, close to, to Rav Shach, to Rabbi Shach. So that's how he became a member of Knesset. So that's how he became uh, number one in the list of uh, Degelat Torah. Um, it was it was not easy to to get uh, such a high um, level in the um, in the Knesset, and then as he became a member of Knesset, because he was the first uh, one in the list, like he was number one in the list, uh, so he could choose the first um, the most important uh, job. So that's why he, cho- he chose um, the finance committee. The truth is he was not coming from banking. He was not coming from um, from uh, uh, finance uh, uh, degrees or something like that, but he was very smart and he knew how to uh, use those advisors that we had in the Knesset and we had very good one. Um, so he didn't, he didn't have a, a background in uh, financing. But he was smart. He was sharp. He he knew how to do that by himself. He learned in a few days. He learned. And obviously, it's a, an incredibly important role because at that level, you can help really control the flow of funding to different parts of the country. The budget of the country goes through the Committee of Finance. So uh, the way that once a year at December, around December, there are a few nights with no sleep. Uh, we go around and uh, tons of uh, uh, sittings and meetings and every year. So do you remember your life changing a lot at that point? You're coming from this being kind of this sheltered Basiakov girl, married very young, having a baby, starting a family. And all of a sudden, at the same time during the day, you're in the halls of power. You're surrounded by these uh, very grizzled professional politicians and, you know, in, in, in a place of, you know, a lot of wheeling and dealing, maybe a place of cynicism, uh, you know, and, and definitely a, a real politic. So what was that clash like at, at the age of, of 18? Yes, of course, it was a tremendous change in my life. As I said, it was like uh, the first day was like a shock and then it was changing and I got used to it. I remember myself coming into office at the end of my pregnancy. I I was a week before giving birth and telling my friends, "Um, listen, give me a mazel tov. And they said, what happened? I said, my mother had a baby. I have a new sister. And my mother gave birth a week before me. And it was really funny. They didn't understand what's going on. So I, I, I learned and they got used to me and I got used to them. And those days, really, 
the members of Knesset that were um, members in the finance committee, we, we became very close friends. And some of their assistants are today ministers and even the prime minister of Israel was a parliamentarian assistant when I was, yeah, we had a good relationship. And uh, Minister Ayelet Shaked, that's today um, the minister of um, Interior, she was also a parliamentarian assistant and Gidon Saar, who is the minister today, he was a good friend then. And a lot of people that today are the leaders of Israel were sitting with me at the hallways waiting for our members of Knesset to finish their discussions in the, the finance committee. And they were all young politicians at the time. Very young, yeah. And they were all close with Bibi Netanyahu, which is uh, fascinating. He later yeah. ended up <laughs> sort of alienating many of <laughs> Fighting them. Fighting with them. And basically all the leaders of, the, of Israel now are people that were once close with, with Bibi and um, yeah. one way or the other. So it's an interesting yeah. lesson in politics and maybe in other areas as in well. Friendship. But, yeah, friendship. Um, or, 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 the, or the opposite. But in any event, so you were, you were doing this work and um, what do you remember as being the most confusing or the most surprising thing that you encountered at that age, again, coming from this much more sheltered background? A few hard topics at those days, like new communications. It was 98 and 99. So just then came into Israel, all those new uh, platforms of media and uh, generation one and generation two of uh, phones and things like that. And I I remember myself taking papers uh, home to read I'm not sleeping for whole nights and just trying to learn and understand uh, all those interesting issues that were coming up on the table of the comedy. And I didn't understand them till then. So that was interesting. And then a year, uh, no, it was maybe three years afterwards. It was 99, almost 2000. So there was a new law coming out in the Knesset saying that a member of Knesset can't hire his first separate relative. And then I had to leave my uh, father-in-law. In the finance committee, there was a, a very plain member of Knesset. No one knew him then. His name was Ruvi Rivlin. And we became friends as working together. And he had his daughter as an assistant too. And he had to get rid of her too. So he asked me if I would like to come and work with him. It took me a few days to answer and I did. And did you did you switch places with his daughter? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, she went to a different job in the Knesset. And then a few months afterwards, he was helping Arik Sharon to become um, the prime minister. That was not easy. And it was very interesting uh, primaries and prime elections. And it was amazing uh, as I was already, uh, already maybe 21. And in that age, to be at such a close team to, to uh, such a special man running to be a prime minister of Israel was very interesting for me. I, I learned a lot of it. And he became the prime minister and he appointed Rivlin to be a minister, minister of communications. And I was, I think, the youngest chief of staff to a minister in Israel at the age of 22, something like that, I, or maybe 23. I had already three daughters at uh, that time. And when I came into the ministry of communications, I already understood what they are speaking about because I learned about it in the finance committee a lot. So that was funny. You know, I'm curious, at this point in time in history, this is still a few years after Rabin's assassination. And at that time, there was terrible uh, tensions between the religious, secular in Israel. 
it created a huge rift uh, in the society. And here you are as young Haredi woman in the Knesset. Did you experience some of that tension? What, what was the atmosphere and what was the attitude towards you from those around you, especially those on more maybe the secular side of the aisle? So, yeah, it was not easy. Uh, we did have, I did experience, uh, I could say, I couldn't say hate or something. Never, never feel hate. But there was uh, a lot of fighting and uh, hard, uh, f- hard feelings. And sometimes even in the elevator, I could meet some member of Knesset and he would throw some word uh, towards me. Sometimes even he thought it, he's, he's funny or something, you know, saying some sort of joke about me being again pregnant or things like that. It was not easy days in Israel. But Alex Sharon was the right uh, leader. He was he was a very nice prime minister. I remember those two years of him being a prime minister as a very interesting era for me. I learned a lot of from him from from his uh, staff. Like it was really playing with the big people, like swimming like, in the yeah, with the big fish, as we say. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I learned a lot. Do you find that at that point in time you were formulating a political ideology? Um, because I imagine growing up, you didn't think so much about politics. So, I mean, you probably naturally assumed whatever positions you had, you know, your community adopted. But as you started having this really up close connection, did you start determining your own political philosophy, your own beliefs on specific issues? And did those beliefs ever differentiate from you know, sort of the party line uh, beliefs of, of the community that you came from and, and in a sense were sometimes representing. So I'll, I'll tell you, my husband, he do he did grow in a in a family that Shabbos table was around politics and speaking about issues like that. So I heard a lot at home. In Israel, the Haredi and the religious communities, they go with the right always, almost always. So, and in those days of Arik Sharon, it was, it was crazy because he started like a rightist and then he gave back uh, Gaza. It was the disengagement in 2005, which, which really turned his back on the right wing community. Yeah, it was, they were terrible days because my father-in-law was in Knesset against uh, giving back Gaza. And even my member of Knesset and uh, Ruven Rivlin, he was against. And they were su- such good friends and they were fighting about such an important issue. Um, so it was not, not easy days for me. I remember that being like hard days. I uh, had to think about a lot uh, about uh, everything in those days, especially that issue of giving back Gaza and the Haredi community and the religious community uh, coming against the prime minister that they uh, themselves brought up uh, to be a prime minister. And, uh, you know, there was so much, just, you know, the entire right wing, you know, in a way there's, there's a similar kind of sentiment today when Bennett became prime minister and the, the right wing felt betrayed by him. But I think that was a much more dramatic uh, example of that. Yeah. Actually left Gaza, pulled out of, you know, left yeah. 10,000 Jews, you know, without a home and, uh, you know, just ended up destroying synagogues and communities uh, in Gaza. And it was a very, very tumultuous time. Yeah. 
yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, it, it could be it's like what Bennett did now. Um, but as you said, it was uh, even uh, worse because people were staying without houses. The country was filled with uh, all those uh, people uh, screaming against Sharon and uh, it was very hard. And then uh, Sharon, uh, he was not feeling so good. And he still, they were still friends. Like uh, Rivlin was against him and he didn't like him uh, giving back Gaza. But in some ways they did stay friends. And I remember Rivlin calling him the last night. He, he was not feeling good. He had some, uh, I'm not sure if it was an operation or something the, mor- the morning uh, after. And then he lost his consciousness that very night. So I think maybe Rivlin was the last one to speak with him. Before he was, and he was unconscious for a few years before he passed away, and yeah. that was a yeah. very, very also dramatic situation. Yeah. Now, Rivlin himself is not religious, correct? Yeah, right. So, what was that interaction like? You know, for you and for him, having that was you being his chief of staff for someone who's <laughs> uh, you know, does, did he respect religion? Did he did he know much about it? He's a Jerusalemite. He grew up in a family that respected uh, religious people. His father already was not religious, but his grandfather was religious. So he knew. He knew what's uh, shul, he knew what's holidays, he knew what's Yom Kippur, what's Rosh Hashanah. He knew everything. So he really, he, he really respected. And I worked with him for 23 years. I just felt respect and understanding, never felt uh, something else from him about me being reli- so religious. Now, along this time, you were building a family. And uh, as you said, you were 22 years old and had three daughters already. And anyone can look up online and see that since then you had uh, quite a few more children. Can I Nahara? Thank God. And uh, I think today, 12 children, at least according to the media reports, uh, you can't always trust uh, Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's what it says. It didn't name yeah. your children in Wikipedia, but it says the number. So, <laughs> you know, people, it's very popular today to talk about a you know, work-life balance and for women, especially, and how do you have a, a job and manage a family and people talking about this when they have one or two children and a, you know, any kind of job, but here you have many, many children close together in age at a young age, and you're in a very intense job where, you know, you might be needed at the drop of a hat you know, somebody scheduling, calling, you're dealing with someone in the highest levels of power in a major world government. Does work-life balance even like exist? Is, is, is it something you can even talk about in such a scenario? So it was not easy, of course, uh, being pregnant and having those children and raising them up. But I got a lot of help also from the, my family, especially from my husband. He was uh, helping a lot until today. And he's a very busy man too. He's uh, the mayor of our town, Telstone. And then he was a uh, deputy mayor for, for all those years. Uh, also in a very, at a very young uh, age, he became a deputy of the mayor. First a member of council and then deputy mayor. And now he's a mayor. But he always, always helped a lot. He always was home as he could. And we got a lot of help. It was not easy. If I look at it today, or if one of my daughters will uh, do that today, I I won't understand how. How could she do that? And if I'm trying to understand how I did it, I'm not sure I I understand. I even didn't take the breaks after... after Maternity leave. Maternity leave, yeah. We call it in Israel, maternity leave, yeah. I took them for two weeks 
three weeks. That was the maximum. And I came back to work. Sometimes it was easier than staying home with a baby and just going out to the office was easier. No, that's a joke because home always waited and everything waited for me. No uh, magics at home. I had to do everything afterwards when I came back. So it was not easy. And um, I'm not sure I'm, I could understand how I did it in those uh, young uh, days. Probably just for all that help that I got from my mother and from my sisters and especially from my husband. What was the response people were giving you? Like, were, were people proud of you? Or were they a little bit suspect, like, this is not really for you? I Meaning people in your family, in your immediate community around you, did, did they, you know, did they see you as kind of like a, uh, we say like a novelty, like a, like a curiosity? Or did they say, oh, we're, we're proud. This is our, this is our Rivka in the, in the Knesset. <laughs> so some, some. Uh, my father didn't like it so much in the beginning, but then he was okay with it. Grandmother, my bubby, she was... She admired me. She was so excited about it. Everyone who moved, uh, each one of her friends knew that her granddaughter is in the Knesset, in that job. Uh, she she used to tell her friends that I run the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of did, you know, because the, the person who's the chief of staff really has a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, influence. <laughs> yeah. Responsibilities. Yeah. But I didn't really run the country. There was a prime minister and some ministers around. But he, she would uh, t- tell her friends my granddaughter is in the Knesset and she runs the Kennedy. She was so excited. She was so proud of me. Uh, she came to visit in the Knesset and in the uh, president's house. Yeah. Incredible. So, but it sounds like there were some people who were not as charitable uh, in their perception, either because they thought, I guess, that you, you know, maybe they, they felt that you were doing the wrong thing or perhaps more so they thought, I'm, and I'm only speculating that you would be uh, a negative influence if, if they had a certain ideal for what a, you know, maybe a Haredi woman should be like. And maybe you were, you know, creating other possibilities in people's minds. Do you think that was part of, you know, what some of the opposition might have been? I don't think so. No, because I was not a, a negative example. Like I was trying to keep my traditional and I was... Um, staying Haredi as before. So I don't think I was a negative example. I don't think that was the problem. My father was afraid of that, but then when he saw it's okay, so he got, um, he relaxed and he uh, started giving me support. I think there were people that were against it just because they were jealous. They would like that job uh, to them for themselves. <laughs> that was the only thing uh, around it. You know, I was sometimes in just um, all the staff around me were men, none of them religious, of course, none of them uh, Haredi, and tons, I can't say tons, but of course, tens of them would like to have this exact uh, job. Uh, So (laughs) sometimes people were jealous. Sometimes maybe one one or two of them uh, covered it in uh, religious uh, uh, ideas. But I don't think so. I, I don't. I was not a, a neg- negative uh, example, and I don't think someone was afraid of me being a negative uh, example. So tell me a little bit about some of the experiences that you had. I mean, in Israel, the president is more of a ceremonial role. You know, obviously has certain power, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the president actually does do. But based on that, what were some of the in interesting places that you visited or some of the unique experiences that you got to have within that role? So in Israel, the president is, as you said, he's a symbol uh, leader. He gives patterns. He signs all the laws. 
He goes to visit all the sick soldiers and goes to visit uh, the families of soldiers who passed over and were killed in wars and things like that. And also he takes care of the bilateral relationships of Israel. Uh, so he travels a lot and he also hosts at the president's shrine. He hosts leaders from around the world. Uh, so we all, always had a lot of experiences around it. I, I remember going to the Vatican. It was a very important visit. He was supposed to meet the Pope. This is John Paul II? Yeah, the second. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they gave a lot of uh, important importance to this meeting. They thought he could help us with the Palestinians. And, and, and that's right, because the Pope has a lot of influence on the Palestinians and all Arab countries around us, uh, Jordan and Egypt and things like that. So they were preparing him a lot for the meeting, uh, giving him talking points and doing simulations. If he will ask that, so answer that. And if he won't ask that, so don't bring that to the table because it's tricky uh, topic and things like that. And then they were starting uh, to explain us how would the meeting uh, look like and how we would walk long hallways and be accompanied by very high uh, range of uh, cardinals. And then they said each one of us will have to, I, I always stand behind the president, I'm second in the row. Uh, each one of us will have to shake hands with a, with a Pope and bow, get some uh, souvenir from him. So I told the ambassador, listen, I can't shake hands with, uh, with him because I don't shake hands with men from religious issues. So he said, okay, I'll let them know and it will be okay, don't worry. But he forgot, he forgot to let them know. And the day came and we were traveling towards the Vatican with all our motorcycles, the black Mercedeses and things like that. And as we got close, I got very nervous. I was, because the meeting was so important to, to Israel. And I told the ambassador what, what would happen. I'm so nervous. He said, Rivka, listen, call your rabbi. And I'm sure he will let you one time to shake hands with the man because this is a very important meeting. But I didn't want to do that. So I didn't. And we were passing all those uh, long hallways with all those uh, uh, soldiers. And as we got close, uh, I really got so nervous. And I was using uh, the school of Reb Chaim, uh, saying, uh, just say, Eino Novado, Eino Novado. Which means, just I, to explain, it means that there's not, no one but God. And, it's, and the idea was that when a person yeah. recites that over and over, it's kind of a, a protection. Having that consciousness offers them some sort of a protection against uh, you know difficult circumstances. Reb Chaim says it's especially good to use it when you go to meet someone from the government, because when you stand across a king or a prime minister or someone like that, they have a lot of power and you are afraid from them. And then you should just uh, remember who is the only one uh, on top of you. So I said that to myself and then my turn came and he uh, took his hand out to shake my hand and um, I explained to him. Um, from the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. And Rivlin helped me and told him who was my uh, father-in-law and which political uh, community we're coming from. And he understood it. And then when I explained him, I can't shake hands with the man. He said, oh, really? Is that a thing like that? And I said, yes. And in our community, in the ultra-Orthodox community, we keep that. And he he admired it. And he just gave, gave a, a boba himself to me. There's a, a picture that went around uh, viral. I'll send you the picture of him just doing that by bowing to me. And now when I was visiting the, the White House, that was our last 
visit out of Israel as a president. It was just, I think, a week and a half before President uh, Rivlin uh, going uh, out of, uh, of duty. So President Biden invited him to come to the White House uh, for his last meeting. And as we went, uh, we went into the White House. So it's like a lot of um, issues. Only the five people that are going into the meeting could come to a salon called Roosevelt Salon and while the others go to another side of the house. And we were accompanied by the head of protocol of the White House and she was very nice and she was explaining us that the 10 first minutes of the meeting, President Rivlin will go in by himself. They will be tete-a-tete, just uh, for, uh, in Hebrew we say four, in four eyes, arba and I. So that's what was going to happen. And she said, sit down, it will take 15 minutes till the president of the United States will finish his uh, meetings. So you could sit down. And I remember it was 2021. It was the same sound as we met when we came in 2015 to meet Obama. Everything was the same. The curtains were, was the same. I hope they washed them from then. The, <laughs> was the same, the pictures were the same, even the Cookies were well, the same cookies. We got some chocolate chips cookies. She explained us that a uh, candidate of the White House wakes up very mo- early in the morning and he bakes a bunch of chocolate chips cookies. And that's what they give out to presidents and uh, visitors that come to the president. So we were waiting there. And as we were waiting, uh, President Rillin told me, as me being a chief of protocol, when we go out of Israel, I'm his uh, acting chief of protocol. And he asked me if I would like to come into the Tetate meeting, to the Four Eyes meeting. And I said, yes, I will. So we went in. We were just uh, the two of us and the president of the states. And President Rillin introduced me. And he said, this is Rifka Rabbit. She's my chief of staff. So President Biden sent his hand to shake hands with me. And I said, no, <laughs> I don't shake hands with me. So I said, why? So I said, I'm ultra Orthodox. And Rivlin was helping me to explain it. And I'm coming from the ultra Orthodox community in Israel. And President Rivlin tells him, guess how many children she has. And he doesn't wait for his hand answer. He answers by himself. And he says, she has 12 children. So President Biden went, wow, I don't believe it. He was uh, uh, looking at me and asking, is that true? So I said, yes, that's true. <laughs> I have 12 children. I can't believe it. He said, my mother should know you. She should see this. She admired big families. She was a Catholic or something like that. Oh, she would love to get to know you. I will show you a picture of her. But first I have to go on my knees for a mother of 12 children. And as he's saying that, he was wearing a nice blue suit. I got scared something will get dirty, but he went down on his knees and an elegant and right back up and took me to the other side of the room uh, where was a shelf with pictures of his family taking down a picture of his mother and uh, telling us about his mother some stories. Incredible. What was going through your mind when, when this happened? Well, it was just a, a second, but so much went through my mind. First of all, I thought about my Bobby. She was a child in Israel uh, when it was not Israel, it was Palestine. And then came uh, World War One, And they were so hungry in Israel. So her father left Israel and traveled by a ship to America. And for three years... They were growing up without their father. He was sending some money and some clothing. And after three years, her mother took three small children at the ages of six and four and two around the world from Israel to the States. Uh, there was even a piece of, uh, I think, New York Times or something like that. We had the paper at home. 
as she went down of uh, the sheep with three small children. And they were very poor at the beginning there. And then they had some money and they had good lives. And the moment they heard that the government of Israel, that the army of Israel took back Yerushalayim, took back Jerusalem at 67, they left all their money and all the good life. And they came uh, to Israel. And my mother, she was then 11, I think, uh, something like that. And she held the Sefer Torah the whole way from America to Israel on the plane. She was holding yeah. the Torah scroll. She carried it yeah, the whole way. Her, no, a real Sefer Torah. She was holding a real Sefer Torah they brought with them from, uh, from America to Israel. And she admired everything, all governments, but especially the president of the state that like was God for her. And also the president of Israel, of course. And if uh, when I told her at 2015 she was still alive, I told her I'm going to visit Obama. She filled her kitchen with uh, pictures of me and Obama, and she changed her wallpaper to the same wallpaper that in the, was in the White House because I was in the White House. She was crazy about it. And, if, and then she passed over. She didn't know I was uh, meeting Biden. But if she would know uh, that he kneeled down, uh, before me, for me being a mother of 12 children. He did do that because my name is Rivka or because I'm a chief of staff. I'm, I'm sure he met tons of chief of staff until today. He just did that because I decided to dedicate my life to family and to 12 children and to being a mother. And he admired that. Did you have any idea how viral that would go and, and kind of what the reaction would be all around the world? The truth is not. No, I, I, I even didn't know that someone was taking a picture because I thought we were by ourselves at the room. It was like very quiet. The room was very quiet. But there was some photographer from the government, from a PMO, and he took that picture. And yeah, it was uh, that was. And what it. kind of response did you get from? All over. Amazing responses. Everyone was so nice. <laughs> they get anything uh, bad. Was there someone very surprising that reached out to you that you were you couldn't believe that this person, you know, Since responded then, to you? Even when I meet, uh, I, I met now the ambassador of uh, Israel in the states when I was in a, now in New York. So he said, "Oh, I should go down on my knees when I meet you." Some people do that a lot. It's like a joke. <laughs> yeah, that's great. What are some of the other? How many countries have you been to with? President Rivlin, I mean, were you in many, many countries? Yeah, yeah. I was trying to count once, I think uh, about 60. And each country were going around from town to town. And even when your children were young, were you traveling? Uh, yeah, I traveled a lot. The thing is that President Rivlin, he doesn't like Lord travels. So the travels were four days, things like that, usually without a Shabbos. So that was very good for me. Uh, but yes, we traveled a lot. And also when we were here in Israel, we also uh, had to host a lot of uh, presidents, kings, uh, princes. That also was a long uh, job, 24 hours, 24-7. Do you enjoy travel and, and some of the perks? I imagine you fly on his, uh, you know, the private plane and, and all of these things. Is, is that something that you enjoy or it's something that doesn't excite you? <laughs> Usually I did. I enjoyed it, especially today when it's it's over. So I could tell you it was crazy. It was really such a crazy experiences. But sometimes it was not easy. Uh, sometimes I missed uh, 
birthdays of my children. I remember myself uh, sitting in India on Shabbos and knowing that they are all uh, now having a good time together. It was, uh, I think it was 18th birthday to my, uh, to my boy, to my uh, son. So I was crying and they were celebrating. Uh, yeah, well, it was not always so easy. Sometimes uh, when we were there in India, we came back very sick. We got some typhus and I was uh, at hospital for three weeks. But usually it was, uh, it was interesting experiences. I remember it, uh, good taste of it. Did you, did you have, other than Israel and, and the U.S., did you have a favorite country that you got to visit? Uh, <laughs> Everything was very nice. Uh, maybe France, maybe Paris, uh, Rome. I think the most beautiful town I saw in the world, of course, Jerusalem is the most beautiful town in the world. Every time I came back home, I went to the hotel to, to thank uh, Hashem. And I always thought uh, Jerusalem is the most, most beautiful uh, city in the world. But after Jerusalem, I think maybe St. Petersburg. In Russia is the second uh, beautiful place I saw in my world. Yeah, in my life. It's Interesting. Okay. Putin will be happy uh, to hear that from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also had a very funny uh, story with Putin when we were meet- meeting him. So he invited us for a state dinner, a very uh, nice state dinner, like nine portions and uh, knives and forks were from uh, gold. And he brought everything kosher. I brought some kosher catering. I don't know. Everything was glass. And he has a relationship with some rabbi, you know, Rabbi Goldschmidt and and, and And Rabbi Lazar. And so he he knows a little bit. Yeah. He probably, he he got help from them. And it was a small, small uh, dinner. We were sitting almost, I was sitting almost uh, across of him. And as we were between the portions, he he told us, he wants to tell uh, tell us a story about his childhood. And he was telling us about his parents. He was li- uh, living in the outskirts of uh, St. Petersburg. And uh, his parents uh, were very poor. So they worked very hard uh, from early in the morning till very late at the evenings. They were going out of the house when it was still dark and getting back home when it was already dark. So he used to stay by his neighbors. He had very nice neighbors in his block. It was that buildings there, there were big blocks. And he loved those uh, neighbors. They helped him uh, making homework. They had a few children, uh, three or four children, a very nice environment, polite children. He loved it. But they had something very weird. Every Friday afternoon, they were sitting down. To all to eat. The mother would light candles and they were all sitting down uh, to eat a festive uh, a dinner. And as he grew up, he understood they were Jews. And he, that's, he tells us all this, I'm sitting like across of the one of the most powerful leaders in the world, very close. And he was telling us this. And as he grew up, he said, as he got a leader and became a president of Russia, he tried to treat Jews as best as he could. And as we went out of of, uh, this uh, state dinner, I thought it's crazy, this story. I thought maybe he made it up. I was not sure it's really, it's real. It's like sound too, too good. And I called Rabbi Lazar. I called him by phone and I asked him if it's true. If it, And he said, yes, I know this story. I know this family. It's a real story. And he really tries to treat uh, Jews uh, as well as he could. Incredible. It shows us, you know, how, how we should... Uh... Think about we never know who our neighbor is, you know, and who's they're gonna who they're yeah. gonna become and you know how, how we should treat every 
person. And also maybe tells us that Owas, the most powerful leader in the world, one of the most powerful leaders in, of the world. Also, he admires the idea of a family sitting uh, once a week all together to eat. And these days of 2021, it's not so uh, understandable to admire all these values of family, children being together, getting married. Well, that's a, that's a great uh, segue into one of my last questions, which is how have you maintained your own values over all this time? And how have you managed not to become cynical? Politics is so, can be so, you know, uh, dirty, can be so uh, vicious, can be so difficult, you know, there's personal and, and attacks and, and just what you need to do to get ahead. And how, you know, how do you do it? And you know, I see you have a big smile on your face, so <laughs> you must have a... Because it's funny. I- I'm not sure you will like my answer, but I always just look at it as a, a game. <laughs> because really, if I would take it uh, to my heart, it-, it was really not easy. As I told you, uh, people wanted my job and would do everything for, <laughs> for getting it. And there were a lot of... Uh, in Israel, we say you need, you need a high shoes because there are a lot of snakes around you when you are in politics. And that's true. A lot of snakes. So I, I always just took it very easy and didn't take anything uh, too uh, <laughs> too hard. And sometimes when things got hard, so I said, I'm just playing some chess or something. Just think that <laughs> you should just win this situation. And uh, <laughs> it's just a, a game. And of course, uh, as a, a believing uh, woman, so I had the most powerful tools of the world. I could dive in, I could speak to God uh, directly. <laughs> it's it's a thing that I thought a lot about it because when we went to visit presidents or prime ministers or kings, so my staff was so excited. We had some, some people in my staff went and bought, and bought a new suit or a new dress for those meetings and they were getting all dressed and makeup. And, and I said, me as a Jew, as a from uh, lady, I have this opportunity three times a day <laughs> to just speak directly to the most powerful king in the world. And he listens to me and he's the only king that could probably pa- uh, has power on my life and could change some, uh, something. If I go to meet the king of Spain or Russia or even the president of the States, it's very nice. <laughs> it's a nice experience, but none of them could... Uh, changed my life. None of them have influence of what would happen with me. So the opportunity of me uh, speaking to God three times a day, I found it very relaxing, gave, gave me a lot of power. Amazing. Hey, you know, you're you're in a very unique position as this Haredi woman, ultra-Orthodox woman who's been in this position. Do you see yourself in a way as an ambassador for the community? And how do you, in general, approach the concepts of sort of the rifts and the, the divides that exist in Israeli society, which is unfortunately such a polarized you know, place. And, you know, I've been blessed to interview on this show many amazing people who are doing a lot of work in that arena, Kesher Yehudi and Yehushua uh, Pfeffer, and a lot of people who are leaders in this space of trying to bridge people together. But you're in a unique vantage point from that perspective. How do you see that divide that's there and, and what can be done about it? So the truth is that just me being there, I felt an ambassador and I did. I was an ambassador, but just by being, just by behaving, 
and uh, being calm and being true and not saying lies and things like that. But I didn't have those experiences, as you say, of Angel Pfeffer and Nefesh Yehudi and all those. I, I never tried to change um, other people. <laughs> maybe I didn't have time for it. Or maybe I, I was just not professional at that. So I did do that. I was not trying to change other people or to influence their ideas of making them more religious, more keep, keeping a, a, a tradition or things like that. But I did feel an ambassador as only by the fact of being there at the, that important place. And does it give you hope for the possibility of relationships and, and healing in Israeli society? Or do you feel like really we're just growing further and further apart? It's not a, It's not just an Israeli society. Now I was in uh, the States uh, for a few days and, and a mission of called the uh, Gesher. And that's what they were trying to do, like building a bridge between all kinds of Jews and all kinds of uh I, I'm not so optimistic about it. We are, I don't know, <laughs> we're so different. Everyone is the Jew, and I believe and a lot of them are real as Zionists and want to help Israel. But for my belief, as I was grew I grown up, there's a lot of ways to be a Jew, but there's one there's one halacha. I came back home not so optimistic about it. Yeah, there's there's a certain immutable, you know, unshakable reality of, of certain laws that even if a person would want to walk away from it, we are bound by and constrained by. And, and that's just the reality that, that we're dealing with. And that does limit the possibility for certain types of compromise. No, no doubt about yeah. it. Let's just the last couple of questions, Rivka. I mean, if your daughter came to you today, one of your 12 <laughs> children, your daughter especially, and said, okay, Ima, I want to work in, uh, I want to go into politics. Help me get a job in uh, the next uh, Reuven Rivlin's uh, office or whoever the, you know, the next person is. What will you tell them? Oh, uh, I've been asked this question so many times. It, it's, it's a good question. First of all, I want each of my daughters to be happy with what she does and to feel good with what she does. So I'm sure if she would ask me, I will help her. But I'm so happy none of them asked. (laughs) (laughs) Are any of your children interested in politics? No, not at all. One of them learned computing, and she's a very good engineer. And one of them learned uh, drama, and she's a very good uh, actor. And one is a teacher. And if one of them will come and tell me and ask me to find her a job in the Knesset, I will probably help her because I want them to be happy. But I, I, I will uh, feel bad for her because it was not easy. It was really uh, tough. And would your answer be different for one of your sons? So I just have one son at the appropriate age and he fell in love with yeshiva. He doesn't come home just for uh, sukkahs and pesah. Wow. Uh, so uh, I can't imagine him uh, wanting to go to Knesset. Maybe that will be a bit easier because politics is still these days, I don't know how it's in the States, but in Israel, it's a bit easier for men. Hard for women. It's, uh, it's a very uh, tough uh, area, tough uh, place. Sometimes I was sitting in uh, uh, meetings and I was the only woman in the room. <laughs> I went through it. I survived it. But uh, sometimes when I was, it was not easy. 
Incredible. And finally, Rivka, what are you doing today that Rivlin is no longer the president? So where are you now? Are you are you retired? I mean, you're still a young woman, many years ahead. Are you involved in other areas of government affairs? What are you doing today? And, and where do you want to see yourself you know, going in the future? So I'm waiting for some job in the Knesset, but that will take a few uh, years. So meantime, I took a different other way and I went to high tech. I'm working for a tech company. My degrees are in computer science and in, uh, artificial intelligence. That's what I learned after uh, being a t- an English teacher. So I went to university and studied uh, computing. So I, it was a an old dream for me to work at the tech company and I fulfilled it just yesterday they were chosen to be the one of te- the 10 most uh, promising startups in Israel it's like a, a sum of prize a prize they got what's it called ActiveFoods very cool very cool so you're actually doing programming or you're more in the management no no, no programming you're doing uh, uh, they call it Israel uh, diplomatic uh, diplomatic relationships for the company. Right, right. As I interviewed on here, uh, out of you, uh, Ola Sergachev, who's a Haredi woman who's doing a lot with cybersecurity. And there's, there seems to be a whole, you know, small, but, but growing group of women who are really taking, uh, you know, a major steps in that industry. Yeah. That's because it's, uh, it's, a. Uh... It's an easy place for women to work because you could work from home, could work less hours a day. It's not like politics. You have to be there 24-7. It's not easy. You work hard, but still it's maybe an easier uh, way to earn a salary uh, for a mother. But it sounds like you do want to return to politics at some point in the Knesset. And uh, what, what would be your dream position in the future? <laughs> I believe one day I will return to the Knesset. I'm not sure if it will be as a member of Knesset or some other high job in the Knesset. I'm, I'm looking towards there. Okay, wonderful. Rivka Ravitz, an amazing, amazing story of what we call the Kiddush Hashem, which means sanctification of God's name and kind of bringing those godly and, and ultimately deeply Jewish values into the public space in a way that's very unique and very authentic and ultimately very inspiring. So I'm so grateful for your time and what a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, sorry for being a bit cold. Refuah <laughs> Thanks. And just a final reminder to join me along with almost 8,000 other people as a daily donor to dailygiving.org. You will be thrilled with yourself for days, months, and years to come. Dailygiving.org, proud sponsor of Jews You Should Know. Please join me. And signing up right now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.